The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. To my successor, whoever he or she may be. Number one, stay close to the Americans, stick up for the Ukrainians, stick up for freedom and democracy everywhere. Politics in general has taken total leave of its senses. Changing one man at the top of the Tory party won't make any difference. It won't fix the problems. Let's have a fresh start for Britain. Let's have a real change of government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics, your daily guide to the corridors of power. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up on today's programme, six months after the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, we're looking at where the conflict is now and how it's upended the global economy. Plus, we'll be examining the UK's foreign policy response with Neil Melvin from the Royal United Services Institute. But first, uh, another Conservative hustings uh, last night in Birmingham. It was number 10 of 12. And uh, pensioners getting the nod uh, from one of the leadership candidates, a a radical proposition given the electorate. And uh, Stephen, talk of a uh, fiscal event. Now... Our listeners may not be aware, but this is Ewan is a legendary host in within the Bloomberg newsroom of events. And I was wondering, have you ever hosted a fiscal event, Ewan? Well, what <laughs> to say to that? You charge people on the uh, way in. I think. Well, funny, the... actually, my last summer I do I did charge people because it was for charity. And also there was quite a lot of booze that needed to be bought. I understand. Well, a fiscal event in this situation is essentially a budget by any other name. And um, this is what Liz Truss was promising during the hustings. She refused to go into detail about exactly what support she'd offer households facing soaring energy bills. Uh, but she did suggest that she would help people on fixed incomes out, such as pensioners. Uh, this, of course, a very perhaps cynical, if you want to be cynical about it, ploy towards Tory party members. The research that we have on the membership of the Tory party tells us that they are they do tend to be closer to pension age than the median age in the UK, according to Queen Mary University. The median age of a Tory party member is 57, so perhaps uh, a very cynical nod towards those membership who might be still making up their minds so, about who to vote for. So cynical, Stephen. <laughs> I, my impressions, I did listen to the debate last night. Uh, it, it, was, it was rather good. There was a, quite a lot of waffle at the beginning, as you often get with these things. But once the candidates got down to the Q&As, uh, I thought they were <clears throat> they were very polished, or perhaps you would expect two candidates to be the Prime Minister to be to be polished. Uh, but particularly particularly Liz Truss. Uh, Sunak had an interesting proposal on uh, uh, energy bills, in fact, on reforming the way the electricity market works, not just throwing cash at the problem, but actually fixing the way the electricity market works, which he says has been done elsewhere in Europe. Uh, and also very much playing up the underdog as well, uh, saying that I know the, I'm the underdog in this, but it's not over yet and, and all that stuff. So really sort of trying to appeal to send people's uh, sense of, uh, you know, going, going for the underdog. So, yeah, it was, it was a, good, a good listen. Of course, not over yet, but still does seem to be coming towards the end of that long battle. Well, away from the Conservative leadership hustings, it has been six months since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine, sparking a security and energy crisis that's affecting the global economy. Today is Ukraine's Independence Day. Celebrations understandably muted because of the fear of Russian attacks. Well, we've been discussing the political and economic consequences with Bloomberg's EMEA economics and government correspondent Lizzie Burden and with our senior international affairs reporter, Mark Champion. 
Essentially, the, there's a stalemate on the ground. Uh, the two sides, the Russians actually digging in in the south, uh, taking defensive positions to make sure they can't be rolled back uh, in the Donbass. Uh, that offensive is really grand. It continues. Uh, there are Every day there are attempts by the Russians to take one town or another, um, and sometimes they're successful, but it's moving very, very, very slowly. Um, you know, in, in a kind of broader sense that you could, uh, and there's a sense within Ukraine, you know, 98% in a recent poll of Ukrainians said they thought they can win the war or will win the war um, and there is a sense there that they've just done so well uh, against expectation against the expectation even amongst themselves that they uh, could be rolled over by the the mighty Russian military machine you know in in days or weeks um, that uh, you know in a sense they do feel victorious you now see on Independence Day still independent um, the president of Ukraine saying you know this is going to end in Crimea and it won't end you know we're not interested in peace talks right now or a ceasefire we're interested in victory uh, so in in that sense you know the the momentum is is on the ukrainian side the talk is of a ukrainian counteroffensive, but they really it's going to be very very difficult okay so bogged down perhaps lizzie on the economic impact for ukraine uh, at war but talking about reconstruction yeah the imf is projecting that ukraine's gdp is going to shrink 35 percent this year because Russia's choked off access to the Black Sea. That was the main artery for 80% of the exports out of Ukraine. And so even though you've got the cost of grain soaring abroad, the home market's flooded with exports they can't get out. And then you've got factories that are housing refugees. They're making supplies for the fighters on the front line, distributing aid. But Yes, you're right. The reconstruction conversations are already underway. It's going to be a bigger aid package than the Marshall Plan, because unlike at the start of the war, no one thinks this is going to be a short conflict anymore. It's going to cost more to rebuild Ukraine. And it's important to get Ukraine's farms, businesses, industries back on their feet. Uh, if the war is going to end on Kyiv's own terms. Yeah, we were speaking to a Ukrainian uh, politician, uh, member of parliament, uh, earlier on TV. She was talking about the inflation rate, 22% now year on year in Ukraine, and, and the challenge that's posing for households, the high unemployment rate as well. Mark, w- when it comes to the aims and objectives of the man who's central to all of this, Vladimir Putin, are we any clearer in deciphering what those are? Uh, no, we had a pretty good idea at the beginning. Uh, he had very broad ambitions. He wanted to control all of Ukraine. He wanted his own man in Kiev. He wanted uh, no armed force uh, of Ukraine. Uh, and he wanted to uh, move, essentially, uh, Russia's uh, defensive perimeter, its military space, to the Ukrainian borders uh, and to you know annex uh, a piece of the east to Russia. Um, today, you know, obviously, he can't do that um, you know, it, in the immediate future. Um, whether he's abandoned and those uh, larger goals we don't know. Uh, he definitely still wants to and is still trying to uh, take all of the provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, which is what he's you know, set out at the very beginning of the war publicly. Um, and he wants those. He wants to be able to hold referenda um, in the south too. Uh, you know, ideally, they would like to have all of Zaporizhia and Kherson uh, so that they can hold referenda there, um, which would rubber stamp the idea that these are going to be part of Russia. But at the moment, he can't do it. Um, at least, it's, you know, it would be unsatisfactory to hold those referenda now. So, you know, we don't really know. Uh, he doesn't tell us what exactly what he what was going to do. He never has. Um, we had a pretty good idea at the beginning. Uh, right now, we're just pretty much guessing. Okay, Lizzie, um, the sanctions then that the West has rolled out against Russia, are they actually working? 
Well, it's hard to tell, even though we're six months in, given that Russia data's almost certainly unreliable, uh, probably more so than before the war. But the idea that sanctions are crippling the Russian economy does seem pretty overstated, even though that was the hope at the start of the conflict. You've seen Chinese exports to Russia rebounding sharply. You've got higher prices for oil and gas. Yes, export volumes are down, but in value terms, they're up. They're lining Putin's coffers. The only comfort really is that as Berenberg's put it, sanctions are a slow poison. You're seeing brain drain out of Russia. And even if the war ends, Europe's going to try to wean itself off Russian energy as fast as it can. Uh, Mark, when, when it comes to the proximity we are to any kind of talks or, or end to this conflict, uh, are either side talking at, at this point? Are there any conversations between, between the Russians and the Ukrainians? Uh, you know, barring the grain issue, no. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the Indonesian, uh, uh, Indonesia has been trying to develop some kind of, uh, you know, talks, um, but uh, said you know, it, there's no point. And neither of them wants to talk. They, uh, they spoke with Putin, they spoke with Zelensky, uh, just not interested. Um, yeah. I, and I was just going to sort of say, in that case, how has this also changed? And you have a, um, a well, beautifully written piece on the terminal on this. How has this changed our view of Russia in terms of being a military power? Yes, I mean, we, we went into this, uh, you know, really in awe of Russia as a military power and, and of its, um, you know, it, it wasn't a peer to the US necessarily, uh, uh, but it was, you know, up there with China um, and it was uh, uh, certainly thought of as a peer to, you know, the, the, the major, other major uh, NATO uh, military uh, forces like the UK and France. Uh, that's in question now. They haven't been able to do uh, the sort of basics of modern warfare, which is, uh, combined operations where your air force, your your land forces, the artillery, they're all working together and, and really suffocating the opposition, mm. giving them no, spe- no space. So that was Mark Champion and Lizzie Burden speaking a little bit earlier to our colleagues Caroline Hepker and Tom McKenzie. You heard Tom mention there the interview with Ukrainian MP and Professor at Kiev School of Economics, Inna Sovson. Well, she's been speaking to Bloomberg as the US is set to announce another $3 billion of military aid for Ukraine. What is most important is, of course, the weapons deliveries, and that is what we expect from the West. So all the new announcements from the US side, from the Germans and all other countries are actually critically important. But the issue is not only about the money that is being allocated to buy weapons for Ukraine, but also with the uh, the specific types of weapons that would be provided to the Ukrainians. And unfortunately, we're still waiting for a single Western country to announce that they are willing to provide tanks for the Ukrainians. Because as you rightly put, it out, uh, the Russians are digging in. And I don't know a single military strategy of how to kick them out of our territory without the tanks. Yet, unfortunately, as of right now, not a single country has actually announced that they are willing to provide uh, tanks to the Ukrainian army. So, so the question is not only about the number, the, the amount of money that is being allocated, but also with the types of weapons that would actually be provided to the Ukrainian army. But altogether, I'll tell you this, we do not feel abandoned. We want, of course, uh, more people to be talking about the, about this. But again, the question is not how much we talk about this, but how much arms is provided to the Ukrainian army. Okay, so that's on the need, Ina, for for that military, continued military support. When it comes to your expertise around economics, what are the key challenges uh, for the Ukrainian economy uh, and the need for international support on that front? 
Yeah, indeed, the economic situation is devastating. And I think that is one of the biggest concerns for the Ukrainians right now, because military-wise, not many things are happening right now, apart from the blowing up of the Russian depots with the weapons and ammunition. But with economics, people are now starting to feel that they are getting poorer. The inflation of over 25%, uh, that is something that we are feeling in everyday life. I'm seeing people of, of middle class like myself who are now starting to think whether what to buy in the supermarket. That's something that we haven't experienced for quite some time. Well, that was Ukrainian MP Ina Sovson speaking to Francine Lacroix and Tom McKenzie. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, it's six months since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And on today's programme, we're taking an in-depth look at the war and its consequences and the UK's foreign policy response. Well, joining us now is Neil Melvin, Director of International Security Studies at RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute. Neil, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg UK Politics. Now, 100 days into the war, you said that the way the war was playing out for Putin so far, quote, goes beyond disappointment. What's your assessment now as we uh, hit the six-month mark? Hi, it's great to be on, on the program. I mean, as you say, it was six months into a war that uh, was initially planned to be about three days. So I think that really highlights how far off track the, the Russian plan has gone. And I think where we are now is really at a, a sort of turning point in the war, potentially, in which we've seen really three phases in the fighting. The first phase was Russia's attempt to do a sort of shock and awe takeover of Kiev, uh, where they were defeated by the resistance of, of the Ukrainian army. That Then the war pivoted to the Donbass, where Russia tried to make a sort of progress using its advantages in artillery and aircraft. And it has made some small, sort of a rather painfully slow gains there. So now we're beginning the third phase in which the crucial question is going to be, can Ukraine begin to push back uh, the Russian forces, retake territory that was gained since February, or will the Russians be able to resist that and essentially turn the conflict into a sort of long-running, protracted war? What went wrong for Russia in the rolling out of the war at this stage? Well, I think I think there are a number of things. I mean, fundamentally, the Russian military and the sort of the higher leadership weren't really, I think, fully prepared for what was what was going to happen in the war, that the plans were, were essentially were organized by a rather small group around Putin. There's lots of evidence that they didn't really appreciate the level to which the Ukrainians were prepared to resist, uh, the sense of, of actually Ukrainian national identity that has emerged in, in recent years. They thought that, that once they sent the army in, that the government would collapse in Kiev quickly, that the president Zelensky would probably flee, they'd be able to put their own regime in there, and the population might indeed even welcome the Russian forces, particularly in, in the eastern areas, which were viewed as being sympathetic to Moscow. As it turns out, of course, that that wasn't the case. And I think a second area where they underestimated was the degree to which Western support would firm up and come behind Ukraine, notably in the provision of military equipment, which has been crucial to Ukraine's ability to resist Russia, but also 
diplomatic support and uh, economic assistance, which has really been vital to keep uh, Ukraine's economy afloat. So since, since those initial, that initial period, Russia's had to really try and reorganize and find a new way forward, and it's still struggling to do that. I think in the West, we've, we've been so focused on the, the, the cost of living situation, of course, driven by uh, the energy crisis because of the war. I feel like attention has, has rather uh, gone away from Ukraine. Just bring us up to date on what's been happening in, in the last few weeks. And as the weather starts to turn cold, as it will quite quickly in, in Ukraine, how will winter affect uh, the war? Yeah, well, of course, actually, the cost of living crisis is very much part of the war. Um, because what Russia's strategy now is, is is really to try to, I think, put pressure on the Western countries. So the so the, their military campaign is rather ground to a halt. Uh, the, the forces they initially deployed in February are pretty much exhausted. They've suffered quite serious casualties and uh, lost a lot of equipment. So increasingly, Russia is now looking... I think to dig in, defend the advantages that, that it has taken since February and really resist um, the Russian offensive. But linked to that is to put economic pressure on the West through energy prices so that uh, perhaps Western solidarity begins to come under pressure in terms of supporting Ukraine. Particularly, there's a feeling that actually the Ukrainians can't win the conflict because they're not making progress on the battlefield. And at the same time, the economic costs are becoming so high to consumers, households uh, and industry in the West that some countries in Europe might start to feel it's time to look for a ceasefire, or even a, a peace agreement uh, that would that would sort of settle the conflict where things are at the moment. So that's really the Russian strategy. What the Ukrainians are trying to do is now to pivot for the first time onto the offensive. And we've seen the beginnings of this with them striking uh, with Western uh, very advanced um, artillery and rocket systems, crucial sites uh, in the Russian held areas, logistics sites, ammunition dumps, bridges, forward headquarters. We've seen them expand the war into Crimea to, to target airfields and other sites there. And this is really preparing the ground for, for what the Ukrainians hope will be in the next few months and before winter, beginning to reclaim territory, perhaps crucially this city of Kherson in the south, which has been taken by the, by the Russians, but possibly in other areas, maybe even around Zaporozhye, where there's a lot of worry about the nuclear facility there. You mentioned the international response there. I'm wondering what your assessment is of the UK's uh, response to this war, among the first, of course, to send weaponry to Ukraine. Well, the UK has really been one of the leaders in, in the Western response. Uh, it's been across a, a whole variety of areas. Uh, certainly the UK has been, after the US, the biggest provider of military equipment. Uh, so we saw early on the UK sending these uh, anti-tank weapons, which, which were really vital in, in the turning back the Russian forces outside Kiev. But there's also anti-air missiles, multiple rocket launch systems, anti-ship missiles, artillery, so a whole spectrum of stuff. And the UK has altogether provided something like 2.3 billion pounds worth of equipment. But it's also now providing training uh, for uh, Ukrainian troops uh, on sort of advanced NATO systems, sharing intelligence. Quite lightly, the UK is involved in cyber aspects of the war. But then beyond that, there's also um, humanitarian assistance, economic assistance, uh, leading on sanctions. So this has really been a core 
pri- sort of foreign uh, security policy priority for the UK. What does the policy response tell us, uh, if, if anything, about the UK's post-Brexit de- defence strategy, about where the UK sees itself in the world or where, where the UK wants to see itself in the world? I mean, I think it does tell us some things. I mean, in many ways, of course, the, the current policy is really an extension of the way that the UK has approached Russia uh, really beginning a decade ago as relations turned sour, as, as Russia was involved in these assassinations uh, in the UK and, of course, uh, chemical weapons, a, a growing military confrontation, including sort of Russian aircraft trying to penetrate uh, UK airspace and um, UK uh, territorial waters. Uh, so, so that worsening relationship has, has fed into this. But I, I think that post-Brexit, what, what the UK, there were some questions about what this meant for the UK. I think it's demonstrated a number of things. Firstly, that there is really no European security without the UK being involved. The UK remains the largest defence spender amongst the European nations, and it has key capabilities. But it also has shown, I think, a leadership role, and, and that's been in the Ukraine crisis, but also actually in extending security guarantees to Sweden and Finland uh, bilaterally, which is protecting them as they transition to becoming full members of NATO. And then I think sort of rallying uh, other allies in Europe around supporting Ukraine. And so secondly, I think what this also shows that, again, this was a bit of a question about whether the UK would continue to focus on Europe or pivot more to the Indo-Pacific is that the Euro-Atlantic space remains the focus of the UK's interest. I mean, this is the core of, of UK defence and security policies. And um, uh, this is really where the relationships are, are crucial to the UK's homeland protection, which is why we've seen this, this happening. But perhaps lastly, uh, it also shows that the UK can actually be an effective actor outside the EU, I mean, there may be some advantages to that. For example, in, if the UK is, is uh, quick and innovative and, and shows leadership, particularly in areas where it has a strength, such as in defence and security, it can actually be at the forefront of European allies. But it does still need clearly to work with the EU and, and the effect of UK policies are only going to be magnified if it can have a, a close cooperative relationship with the EU and other European countries on these questions. Mm. Where does NATO stand then after all of this, given that leadership role you talk about the UK taking, does that mean that NATO is is more of a backseat organisation now? Well, NATO has really been in many ways reborn by by the Ukraine crisis. There were lots of questions about the future of NATO uh, during the Trump presidency, President Macron famously said a couple of years ago that, that he thought NATO was brain dead. Uh, what has happened uh, si- since uh, the Ukraine crisis started is that people have really understood that NATO is the backbone of European security. And we saw that in the Madrid summit in, in the summer in which there was really an unprecedented unity being expressed by NATO members. Uh, defense spending increased through NATO. Finland and Sweden, as I mentioned now, uh, for the first time in their history, uh, planning to come into NATO, countries that were were non-aligned, military non-aligned. So, so Russia has succeeded in, in, in sort of consolidating NATO as the central actor. 
Um, but what we do question now going forward is whether that unity can continue to be held, particularly as we hit the winter and many of these economic stresses I was talking about begin to uh, have an impact on some of the economies. We already see the, the predictions are looking pretty dire uh, for many economies as energy prices go up, gas supplies may be affected. So this is going to be a question, will that unity prevail uh, even when times get really tough in the next few months. Neil, great to get you here. That's Neil Melvin, Director of International Security Studies at RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.